On this episode, we discuss nihilism and Nietzsche, uh, Sean Michael Norris's book, Heaven and Hurricanes, finding meaning in life and embracing suffering as part of the process, accepting the actions of others in our lives, the ethical ramifications of being a parent, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sean Michael Norris, and I think that you will too. His book, Heaven and Hurricanes, was an absolute joy to read, and I look forward to sharing this conversation with you guys today. As always, if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us on your social media platform of choice. And if you could please give us a like, a share, and definitely make sure to leave a review on the show, that is going to be absolutely crucial in helping me to grow the podcast and be able to bring episodes for many years to come. So thank you again for your support, and I really look forward to seeing your thoughts on the episode. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm here with today's guest, Sean Michael Norris. He's the author of Heaven and Hurricanes. Uh, just want to start out. I want to show the book. I got it sitting right here. Uh, great, great cover art, of course. Uh, I was kind of expecting a little bit of like a romance novel, and uh, there's a little bit of an element to that. But uh, really, really great work um, for everybody. I, I definitely highly recommend you check it out. Uh, it's a coming-of-age story, and of course, I'm going to let Sean tell you about it too. But uh, coming-of-age story, it's kind of like reading a, a modern-day version of the Platonic Dialogues in a lot of ways. It's, it's very deep, uh, talks about a lot of really, really interesting concepts we're going to talk about today in the show. So, uh, Sean, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, and I've, I've been very yeah. excited. I, I was really looking forward to this. Me too. Me too, as, man. As I was reading your book, um, I kept coming across like these like synchronicities, like things that I've thought about or you know things that kind of been really formative to, to who I am. So I can't wait to talk about some of that stuff today too. So. Yeah, same, man. Can't wait. All right. Uh, well, First off, uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself, tell us uh, a little bit about you, your background, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, uh, I have a little bit of an untraditional background, but sort of on the surface might seem traditional, right? I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy. I'm currently in grad school for a master's in literature. And uh, if there's one thing I care about in the world, it's it's sort of the intersection of philosophy, psychology, and literature. Um, that sometimes takes place uh, in the form of narrative therapy. If I'm looking at the psychology side of things, if I'm looking at literature, it's more uh, psychoanalytic literary criticism. There's a lot of stuff in there that I'm really passionate about. And that passion is what led to me writing Heaven and Hurricanes, which you mentioned, uh, funny enough, right, that it sort of seems like you're going to get a love story out of it. Um, what I tell people when they say that is, I have this belief that all love stories are really journeys of self-discovery. Um, and it's sort of like you have to learn about yourself 
by when you fall in love. You can't fall in love with someone until you really get to know the ins and outs of why you are the way you are and why you love the way you love, right? Um, so I, I chose to make Heaven Hurricanes on the surface a little bit of a love story, but really it's, a, it's much more of a coming of age and uh, journey self-discovery. Okay. And yeah, I mean, look, there, there's obviously uh, precedents for that too. Socrates and Plato, they were both yep. believers. And the fact, and this is something that was really, uh, really present during the Renaissance years too, when everyone started getting back into Plato. And um, something that you saw frequently was the idea that love sort of connected us to God, right? Like love yeah. was kind of like a mirror that would show us ourselves and it would help to pull us up closer to to God, to be in a connection with God. Um, so that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, some of the most transformative times of my life, uh, have been, you know, through tough breakups or, yeah. um, through falling in love with someone. So makes, makes a ton of sense to me. So, um, yeah. why don't you go ahead, uh, you know, give, give us a, uh, of course, no spoilers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, maybe, um, you know, about what inspired you to write it, uh, anything that comes to mind. So it's, it's hard, right? Because it's yeah. almost like, um, that question of, uh, uh, what is your identity? You know, who are you? Of course. It's the same, same sort of question, but about a book instead of about a person. Sure. Um, I could tell you about a genre. I could tell you about the themes, but that's not really going to tell you exactly what it is. Um, and I think most of the time when I'm asked that question, I give a little elevator pitch, right? Mm -hmm. It's a coming of age love story. It's set in Key West, Florida. It's a, it's a 22 year old guy, a bartender, really struggling to figure out his life, uh, in the presence of, a, of a, just a ton of grief and anxiety after his father passes away. Um, and it, and it really is told through, through Socratic dialogues and that's sort of the history of it. So when I was in college and this was 11, 12 years ago, um, as part of a, just kind of a thought experiment, I would sit there and I would try to write out my philosophy, but through dialogues, very, um, Plato dialogues, right. Style, mm -hmm. uh, where I, I'm playing devil's advocate against <clears throat> myself. And over time, there were themes in those dialogues that clearly connected to each other and almost felt like I was writing between two people. And after a while, those two people just sort of became characters and those two characters became, Alex and Eliza, the, uh, the two main characters of the book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can see that, um, you know, it makes, it makes me think of a couple things. So like, obviously as you're well aware of, you know, Socrates had a pretty strict policy about not writing things down, yeah. right? Because he's like, well, if I put a, if I put a <laughs> statement down, if I put my philosophy, someone can take it, they can mold it around, they can shape it and they can yeah. turn it into something that I never even said. So he yeah. believed that philosophy was a, a living thing that existed between two people in, in a discourse and a talk. Um, yeah. and when he was going around, of course, I, I think there, like, maybe there was a little bit, he was kind of like the original troll, you know, the gadfly yeah. of Athens going around and stinging yeah. everybody, but yeah. he, he wasn't doing it just to be a dick. Right. I think he was doing it because he, he genuinely was seeking truth. He was willing to live for it, to die for it. I think there was probably little else that really motivated him. You know, if, if we believe, you know, that the characterization of him by Plato and Xenophon, uh, are, are accurate. Right. So, yeah, you got to wonder about that, right? You got to wonder what were those fears 
legitimate in, insofar as they came true. You know, did, right. are we misinterpreting what he really said? Are we did Plato misinterpret what he said? And now he's painted as a character that he wasn't. Who knows? You know, right? Um, so, like something I, that he, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, I like to think that he he was the character that uh, that he's portrayed as. Yeah, yeah. So, something I love too um, with your book, right? Is like each section or each chapter is is kind of like a dialogue. There's not there's not a ton of setup. Um, th- there's not. Uh, I guess like what I'm trying to get at is when, when I'm reading through the book. A lot of times, you know, there, there's a lot of time describing the scene. There's a lot of times where there's things happening in the background, and the, and the book moves very fluidly through. Of course, there is setup. You you feel like you're there. You yeah, kind of see sure. the, the situation, but. <clears throat> It's a transition of dialogue to dialogue, and each dialogue is telling a story. It's it's a very intentional thing. It, it reminds me. Uh, I don't know if you're a Breaking Bad fan. I, I sure. absolutely love Breaking Bad, and there's this one episode right where the entire episode it's just like Jesse and Walter chasing this fly, and yeah. that yep. is my absolute favorite episode of the entire series. I love that. There, there's yep. nothing happening. They're just in the lab. They're chasing this this fly. But so much important character development and like so much development in the plot, like everything comes together in that episode, but yeah. everything that they're individually wrestling with and that's in their head. And I love that of the book, right? Is that you really can hear the, the narrate narrator. You can hear the thoughts. You, you hear what's going through. You see the development of everything going on in his life and how he's reflecting on that. And I think it's, a lot of times it's like reading a story like that forces you to look within. And I'm sure that's probably part of your intention with the book. So absolutely. So part of the reason I love literature at all. And the reason I like to read at all is that it's a deep exercise in empathy. You put yourself into the mind of another person in a very direct sort of way that you don't really get through any other art form. You can watch a movie, you can, uh, you know, listen to music. There's a lot you can do to, try to empathize with people who aren't you, who don't share the same experiences as you. But through a novel, especially a a first-person novel, you really get the the inner workings of somebody else's mind. And when you do that, you you really see the world through their eyes. And there's really nothing uh, more important to me than that, you know, trying to see the world through someone else's eyes other than your own. So it was important to me when I kind of created the character of Alex to be true to how he would see the world. So you saying that means a lot because it was 100% my intention to make it feel like you can see the world through his eyes. I I have to ask you too, and, you know, of course, no, no, uh, no need to respond or respond however you see fit, but like how how much of yourself is in Alex? Is this a, is this a character that you totally created? Is it it's a little bit of a figment of some of some of what you lived through? Or tell me a little bit about that. Complicated, right? Yeah, <laughs> because there's no there's no direct delineation between any of the characters and myself. You mm-hmm. know, I am Alex, but I'm also Eliza. I'm also Eliza's father. I'm also Alex's father. I'm also I'm everybody. You know? Yeah. Uh, they all had. They are. They're all sort of a personification of a piece of me into a full character. And uh, specifically Alex, he's highly reminiscent of who I was when I was about 
22, 23 years old. Yeah. Um, and one of the hardest parts now, I'm 30, I'm 31 soon, but I, I'm sitting here and I'm like, uh, or I was sitting when I was publishing the book thinking, man, I, I barely recognize this guy anymore. You know, I'm looking into a book and I'm, I'm sort of forced to empathize with who I was 10 years ago, which is a, a difficult thing. Um, and as I'm saying that, I, I feel the need to clarify. This book was written 10 years ago. It was complete ah, 10 okay. years ago. Right. And I, I never uh, I never published it because, like Alex in the book, I had a lot of uh, insecurity about kind of just feeling like I'm repeating the same old stories from history. You know, I'm, I'm telling a coming-of-age love story uh, that discusses deep philosophy and, and interesting points about literature, but... I had this this feeling in my gut that you know, no one should read this book instead of Hemingway. No one should read this book instead of Plato. And I had to. It took me almost ten years to get over that fact or, or that feeling. Um, but yeah, that book, that uh, the book, sort of like Children of Pompeii in the novel, which is mm -hmm. a story that Alex writes. Uh, it, it really did. It sat in a drawer for almost a decade. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I never would have yeah. guessed, and it's. One of the things is it's like when, when you're reading the book, uh, something that I have to give you a lot of credit on is if you just would have told me that was my life, I was Alex, literally, it's it's all like autobiographical, uh, yeah. I would have totally believed you. So that, that says yeah. a lot, right? That I really appreciate that. Yeah. You, you can, you could truly, truly believe that you, you were that kid. And, yeah. you know, I, I identified a lot, um, with Alex, not, <clears throat> not in my twenties. I, I kind of had a different mindset in my twenties, but I can really relate to him when I was like 14, 15, 16. Sure. Um, sure. you know, I was really cynical and I wouldn't say it doesn't really seem like Alex has like an issue with depression, so to speak, but, um, he has a very nihilistic attitude on a lot of things. And I, I definitely yeah. felt that way, um, in my angsty teen years, you know, when I was, uh, write, writing Absolutely. sad poetry and yeah, and cry, crying myself to sleep every night because the, the girl of the week broke my heart. So yeah, the girl of the week. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the most interesting things about nihilism to me is how intrinsically tied it is to, uh, sentimentality or, or emotion or sensitivity. You know, some of the most nihilistic people I've ever met are some of the most sensitive or some of the most hopeful. They're just depressed that their hope keeps being unrequited by the world, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to paint that in Alex where he's this guy who on the surface seems nihilistic, but when you really get to know him, he's, he's just deeply, deeply sad that his hope isn't being matched by his reality, um, which is something he kind of has to come to grips with over the course of the, of the novel. Sure. Yeah. Um, so is there, is there anything else that you're, you know, currently working on? You got anything going behind the scenes? Like what, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm a dad first and foremost. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but second to that, I'm, I'm going to school for literature. I'm trying to get more of a more academic foundation. Um, so much of what I know is self-taught and there's a huge benefit to self-taught. Um, and there's not, um, and for most of my life, I thought there wasn't much of a benefit to traditional education. Um, 
because, you know, I went and got a bachelor's degree in philosophy, but I learned more about philosophy on my own than I ever did in school, right? right. Uh, I'm also somebody who was a high school dropout. I dropped out uh, my junior year just because I didn't think school was, was serving me. And now I'm at a point where I'm starting to see the value of, of foundational knowledge in sort of the history of literature and the history of philosophy. And so I'm going to school and... Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm working on another book, another novel um, uh, that I'm, I'm really excited about because it's the first time in basically 10 years that I get to create a narrative that isn't centered around Alex and the other characters of, of Heaven and Hurricanes. That's awesome. So uh, any, I don't know, any, any guesstimate on like when, when that could be ready? Oh, this year. Or this year. This year, yeah. Uh, it'll be finished this year. I can't tell if it'll be published this year, but it, it'll be done and, and in the publication process probably by, by, by the fall. Okay. But as you know, that process, you know, sometimes oh. takes longer than you expect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, obviously I, I think you said that you, you had a publisher on yours, um, which, you know, I, I self-published everything. So no, I self-published as well. Oh, okay. All right. I, cool. Yeah. So I, I, when I originally went to publish this, I went to one of my professors and I handed it to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I went to my professor. I handed him the basically a manuscript, a couple of chapters at least, and he said, "I'm going to put you in touch with a pub with like a publisher through a university." And I I had a full conversation with these people, and every time I talked to them, they said I had to change the ending. They said I had to change the format. They hated the idea of the journal. Mm -hmm. um, there were so many things that they wanted me to change that. I got really discouraged and that just added to the whole idea of, you know, this book doesn't need to get published or doesn't deserve to get published or shouldn't be published. And it's one of the reasons that it sat, sat, you know, in a drawer for so long, but about, um, you know, two years ago, my wife got pregnant and we're going to find, have a kid. And it really brought up a lot of the feelings from heaven and hurricanes, you know, a lot of the things mm -hmm. that Alex talks about throughout the novel were kind of reawakened in me. And I, I was like, I need to go back to that. And something about it, I was like, I just need to sell publish this. I don't know if it, you know, it'll sell one copy, a thousand copies. I, it doesn't matter. You know, I was like, I just need to get this out because it's, it's, I don't know, something about becoming a father and Alex's journey. It was like the, the story finally came full circle for me, but yeah, I, I self published it. Uh, kind of as a response to all that yeah man the the publishing process is like it's awful i i really it's so discouraging <laughs> i i really wanted to get published and like i mean i had this kind of like romanticized idea about no. like going to barnes and noble and like buying yeah. buying my copy like uh, my own copy and like just oh wow i'm in it yeah <clears throat> and i the more i look into it right the more i research is I'm sure you know you are too. I, yeah. I'm a research guy. Like I want to understand the publishing process. I I yeah. was in contact with uh, Donald Robertson a little bit, who wrote um, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Yeah. You know, huge bestseller. He gave me some guidance on a publishing letter, and I, I kind of found there was this weird, uh, like, <laughs> infinite loop of like regressing logic, where I'm like, yeah. so I'd ask people, and you know, Donald would say, okay, well, you need to you need to write a proposal. And then, you know, you send it to, uh, he, he said, you know, don't go to an agent, send it directly to a publishing house. So yeah. I write it up, you know, great, great. It gives a very compelling case that I think the book can do really well. Talks about my huge following all this stuff. Right. And, yeah. um, 
I send it over and it's like months go by and it's either nothing or like, sorry, we're not interested. And, yeah. you know, some of them will just hit you back and you, or you go to their website and they say, we don't accept any kind of publishing or we don't ex accept any sort of proposal unless you have an agent. Right. And then you go yeah. to the agents and they're like, well, we don't accept anybody unless they're published. So exactly. it's like, it's like, okay, so you go here and they say, we don't take you unless you have an agent. And then you go to them and they say, well, we don't accept you unless you're published. So in order to get an agent, you have to get published. In order to get published, you have to get an agent. In order to get an agent, you got to get published. And then <laughs> I just find myself like ripping my hair out and I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to self-publish it. And again, if, if I sell one copy and somebody messages me on Instagram and they're like, Hey, I, I really liked your book. It changed my life. That's yeah. great. You know, and if I sell exactly, you know, 10,000 copies, it it's whatever. So um, no, I couldn't agree more. That's the, that's the best mindset to go into it with, man, because yeah. it, I think it, largely it proves that what you're dedicated to is the book. It's not the success. It's not, you know, I'm not trying to write this book to make a, a fortune. I'm not trying to do this to manipulate people. I'm not trying to do this to, to kind of, you know, inflate my own ego. I'm doing this because I'm passionate about the, the writing process. I'm passionate about what it is I'm writing about. And, uh, I really like that self-publishing has gotten to the level that it's gotten to where, uh, you know, photographers have Instagram, you know, yeah. uh, musicians have, um, uh, what SoundCloud, there's a, you know, a lot of artists have their own sort of avenue where they can share their work, but for a long time, writers didn't, unless you had a, a blog maybe or something, but there wasn't much to really say, this is my long form book length, you know, mm -hmm. work. So self-publishing, it really gave a lot of freedom back to, to the writers. And I, I love that. Yeah. It, it kind of, it, it, I don't know, it just popped into my head. I was thinking of this quote by Cicero and I'll have to, uh, like kind of summarize it a little bit, but it's, sure. it's, it's like the times are terrible. Everyone has a book or something like that. Like, yeah. um, yeah. that there's a bit of that to it, but yeah, I, I do think that the, the amount of information that's out there, right? Like obviously there's a little bit more junk that you have to sift through, but it is <laughs> sure. pretty amazing that anybody can create a voice in, in this world. There really is a lot more like freedom as far as information goes. Absolutely. And that's actually, that touches on something I thought about a lot while I read your book, which is, um, there's this, uh, sort of concept in memory or like the, the, you know, how memory works, where it's the difference mm -hmm. between availability and accessibility, where, um, you have memories that are in your brain <laughs> stored away somewhere from times when you were three years old, five years old, seven years old. And you you don't, right now you don't remember them, but one day you're walking down the street, you smell something and it you're right back to, uh, to being in the kitchen, your mom's making food, whatever it is, you know? And you're like, ah, I didn't even know I remembered that. I don't even know where that memory came from. Yeah. Well, it was always available, but it just wasn't accessible to you or easily accessible to you. And uh, when I read your book, I thought about that a lot as far as all of this, this wisdom that the Renaissance really kind of went back and, re and found, it was always sort of available to people. It just wasn't accessible. And that there's there's another theme of that, um, you know, in modern times, right? Where there's so much information and there's so much valuable information. It's just, I think that a lot of people have a hard time knowing where to access the valuable yeah, information, yeah. knowing where to access the, the information that can really change their lives, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's information overload. And I, I think about this a lot, right? Where like, I imagine myself living in, you know, 1940, Right. And like, 
everybody like watched the same TV shows. There was no internet. Everyone read the same books. They, they there was very similar teaching in school. So it was like everybody had this like shared reality. Like you could be living in Montana, somebody could be living in New York, and obviously it's a little different because of the the, the actual place that you are. But it's like everyone had a shared reality. Like they, they experienced the same things, they thought the same things, and of course there were like you know, there were there were different uh religions and there were different politics and things like that. But it was Yeah, culturally sure there was a little bit differences from yeah. one place to another. Yeah. And you, you look, it was a lot less polarized, right? Like politically there was a lot less polarization. And you, you fast forward to, you know, twenty twenty three and I look at the world and it's like you can have three people living next door to each other on the exact same street in the exact same town. And yeah. one person's like gone down the, the like Alex Jones freaking like YouTube yeah. hole. Another yeah. person's like an avid Trump supporter and the other person's like an avid like Biden supporter. Right. And yeah. they all live these completely different realities. Like one because, door down from each other. Yeah. yeah. Because they're exposed to completely different, uh, stimuluses and information and books and ideas. It's, and there's, there's a compelling case, right? Like I, I'm sure you've thought about this as a philosopher, right? There's such a compelling case for anything. If you just dig hard enough, like if you really want to dig and yeah. believe in a conspiracy theory, like if you want to make a case for flat earth and you truly try to do it, you can make like, you know, like a decent a case, case, right? Yeah. yeah. Of course you have to ignore all the other side, but, um, when there becomes so many compelling cases made by so many people for so many different ideas, it becomes very hard to like even know what's like true. You know, like when you, you, yeah. you look at like Trump with like the fake news thing and it, it's, it's like, how do you trust anything? It, it's really difficult in this world. Absolutely. Um, have you done a lot of reading, um, of Hegel? I've done a little bit. Yeah. He's, what you just said reminded me a little bit of, of a couple of his concepts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the first one, the polarization, I always go to the dialectic. Mm -hmm. And I always think about, you know, the, the, the oversimplification of it is that the, the truth rarely lies in thesis or antithesis, but in the synthesis of the two. Right. And he talks and about when like the truth comes out, yeah. right? And then people yeah. oppose it, and then eventually they accept it. Exactly. It's like this, like a, it's almost like a three-step program where it's mm -hmm. a pendulum swing all the way to the left, all the way to the right. And then hopefully you kind of stop somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think about that a lot with, with almost everything. Um, but I think about that a lot with history. I think about that a lot personally. I think about that a lot in modern times. Um, but he also, Hegel also had a uh, concept of, you know, you have to respect the philosophies that you don't agree with because within every one yeah. of those philosophy, there's a nugget of truth. Even if it's deep, deep in there, even if everything built on top of that little piece of truth foundation is, is bullshit and crazy and ridiculous. And you don't agree with any of it. you got to respect that there's some piece of truth that people cling to. And if you're not willing to, to look at what that truth is and you try to dismiss the whole thing as, as, you know, garbage or a bad idea, you're, you're missing something and you're never going to be able to connect or have a dialogue with the person on the other side. Yeah. You know, um, like th that's like an idea that you see a lot. in I guess just like classical liberalism, which is, I, I guess like if I had to classify myself, I'd probably say I'm like a, a classical liberal, um, kind of like a John Stuart Mill, except sure. I'm not really a utilitarian 
uh, sort of, I don't know. Uh, but it's so hard, you know, to, to classify it's, yourself yeah. as something, but yeah. Um, there's a quote by him and I, I can never find it. I, I need to just go back and reread, uh, like his, his works that I've read and try to figure out exactly where it was. But he talks about how important it is for essentially opposing viewpoints to exist because yeah. it, it helps us to strengthen the ideas and beliefs that we have. Right. So like, yeah, you know, when, when you have a Nazi out there, that's like screaming, you know, death to the Jews and, you know, about the, like the white race, people get into arguments with this guy and it helps them to understand the reasons for what they believe. If that guy wasn't there, right. And he just, all, all the Nazis disappeared, whatever, they all went away. Eventually a hundred years down the road, when everyone had forgotten about the Nazis, some guy might show up and he's kind of like Adolf Hitler. And he's like, Oh, well look, the Jews, you know, they have a lot of money and they control everything. Like yeah. maybe we should like start wiping them out. And then, you know, people might be like, well, you know, yeah, like he's, he's got a point. There is a lot of money there. And it, it's like our connection to these ideas helps us to refute them. It helps us to remember why they're wrong. And obviously that's a big benefit of like history and reading too, is that you, you don't forget, but. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really sort of stuck on Hegel right now, if I'm being honest, I, yeah. I keep thinking about, um, and I thought about this a lot with, uh, with your book too. So, um, with that pendulum swing from left to right, left to right, something you hope to land somewhere in the middle, or when you have thesis and antithesis, you hope to get that synthesis of the two, or, uh, you know, you bring them together. Um, and it's something I think about a lot because you have the Renaissance, which leads into uh, Protestant Reformation and, and mm -hmm. uh, the Enlightenment and uh, scientific revolution, right? And you have this you, this build, but then there's this swing of the pendulum back towards uh, Romanticism. And the Romanticism and the, the within Romanticism, you have Transcendentalism. And it's, it's, it represents this swing from science and reason all the way back to the other side with... Uh, with kind of nature and spirituality. And I think such a benefit to, to learning about history and learning about two different viewpoints, right? Whether it's views of the enlightenment with science and reason or views on the other side with romanticism and transcendentalism, you, the real benefit is looking at the two extremes and, and finding the truth within them and finding the truth in the middle. Um, I, you know, I think the world would be a worse place without either of those things. I, I, I I think I'm a big proponent of that pendulum swing. Um, I'm a big proponent yeah. and, and fan of when one extreme leads to another extreme. There, there's always casualties, right? Uh, casualties and ideas, casualties of literally people, depending on what time you're talking about in history. But to the modern era, when you look back and you kind of study those, those swings, there's so much value in, in looking at what led to um, – you know, what was missing, you know, it, when you have a ideology and dominance, right, which is like science and reason and the enlightenment, what was missing from that in people that made somebody like uh, Thoreau or Emerson say, I need to take a step back, go back to nature and find what this is missing. Um, I think about that a lot as it, on a global scale and on a personal scale. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, I no, something I, I think a lot about. I I see what you're saying. I, I see what you're saying too, and it's it's kind of like the 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 back and forth between 
I guess like empiricism and romanticism, but it's, it's yeah. like, it's deeper than that, right? It's part of the human psyche. There's, there is, it's, it's almost, I don't know. It's, it's, there's so many examples of it. It's like a duality that exists in so many things you have. Um, you have like faith versus science. You have, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, rationalization versus feeling that there's so many examples of it, but, um, yeah, I think we've, we've maybe reached a point where maybe we've shifted a little bit too far to the logical, uh, scientific side. And I, I think what I feel or what I hope for, you know, especially with the book is I, I kind of feel like maybe there's like an awakening happening again. Like it's just, it's just starting. Um, I know we talked about, you know, Patriarch and the, the age of darkness and all that. It's, yeah. I, I can relate to that. And I feel in a lot of ways that I'm living in this age of darkness, but it's like, I can still see that light. And I, I, I feel yeah. like may, maybe there's a shift, right? Like maybe we're going to come back a little bit to the emotional side or, um, you know, the romantic or individual. Side. Yeah. Yeah. The, the humanism, right. The, the yeah. individualism. Yeah. I, I think in the switch like that probably needs to be made. For sure. Um, and, uh, man, when I think about that, I think about, um, how difficult it is to know that you're going through a transition or a transitional period while you're going through it. But looking back on history, you can, you can clearly say like, Oh, this is basically when the uh, Renaissance started. This is basically when um, whatever era you're talking about started. But when you're in the transition, it's hard to really pinpoint that exact day. Very, uh, you know, chicken and the egg, right? Where the evolution of it is like, when does the actual switch happen? When did a non-chicken animal give birth to something that we would now classify as a chicken? And I think, yeah, we're somewhere along that, that, you know, societal evolution right now. Yeah. It's just hard to know exactly where we are on the path. Well, Nate, I'll, I'll add one more thing to that, which it just, it just popped directly into my head. Right. But I think that was one of the most special things about the Renaissance. And I talk about this in the book, right? Like Jacob Burkhardt says like the, like the energizing myth of, of yeah. the Renaissance. It, it, there was this like, there was this idea, this energy that permeated a lot of the people that were involved in this time period. And they knew that they were involved in something special. Like Patriarch yeah. was wrote a letter, an open letter to a future age. Like, yeah, I love that. I, I love when you put that in the book. Yeah. And I, I don't think it was just his ego. I, I think like, you know, I think he wrestled with his ego, just like all of us do, but I think he genuinely believed like I'm a part of something very special and I want to leave this letter. So people kind of understand what was important to me and what made me who I am. And, um, <clears throat> there were, there were so many letters that were exchanged between the different humanists of the time period. And they knew that a lot of these were going to, would be published or would be read back. Yeah. And I think that they, they kind of like put on a show a little bit, but people believed that they were a part of something special and that made something special happen. Right. It, it was yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. Yeah. Which I love. And I would love to see happen again. Um, just got to wonder what that would look like in, you know, 2023. Yep. I don't know that that's a whole another yeah. rabbit hole. I'm not even going to, yeah. I'm not even going to go down yeah. there, but, um, yeah. I'm it, probably, I'm thinking right now it would probably look a lot like, uh, Court of Athens putting Socrates to death for questioning yes, stuff. Sort of what so, I'm imagining as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a good place to probably hop on so we don't get canceled yet. 
We're going to hop over to something I want to talk about. You talked about the children of Pompeii. Um, and, you know, this isn't going to be a spoiler, right? But it is um, part of your book. I thought that the children of Pompeii basically, you know, you explained it as it was a, a book that Alex wrote. Um, and it's about a group of teens that are living in Pompeii and it sort of follows them around and, you know, you have this character development, you're, you're seeing what daily life is like, you're living inside of the minds and lives of these, these teens. And then Mount Vesuvius blows up and they just get melted and the book's yeah. over, right? Um, basically, yeah, basically. <laughs> and I want to talk about it cause there was a part of me, especially, you know, I've gone down the philosophy rabbit hole a lot. I, I have gotten to the point of nihilism, right? I, I had faith. I, you know, read Nietzsche, and people like mis misunderstand Nietzsche a lot, right? They think he's a nihilist. Yeah. They they think that yep. he's this like very dark, gloomy person, but it's not at all accurate, right? What he's telling us no. is like if if you follow logic, if you follow thought, if you follow philosophy, it will take you to this very dark place, this place of nihilism, right? And you're, you're going to stare at this abyss. And if, if you just stare at the abyss, right, you're going to get lost in it and everything's going to be hopeless. But if you're willing to do the mental work to stretch yourself as a bridge across the, the, the abyss, you can come out on the other side and you can be the Superman. You can be the Uber, yeah. Ubermensch. You can be someone that has transcended this darkness and starts to forge their own philosophy and meaning. It's, it's a very powerful thing. So yeah. going back to Children of Pompeii, right? Like this idea that all this stuff that ma happens, it, it doesn't matter because in the end we're doomed. We're all going to die. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about Children of Pompeii, your thoughts on it. Is it real? Yes. Is it? Okay. The Children of Pompeii is a story that I've always deep down wanted to write and wanted to even if it was a short story. You know, it could be a relatively short story based on the premise. Um, but it was a story that I, I thought was, was sort of worth telling because it the goal of it or the, the overall message of it was the things you care about today, the things that mean the world to you, they could be gone tomorrow. They could be gone on the next page of the book and they could be gone and never even talked about again because they were not only, you know, rendered irrelevant, they were burnt from the face of the earth, you know, never to be seen again almost, you know. Uh, and that idea, that that idea that that does happen sometimes and that that, that can be the end of it, that also could be just a metaphor for, you know, uh, the sun eventually burning out and, uh, you know, the, the end of all things, that you could have a very nihilistic uh, kind of goal there or kind of uh, or insight there. And you, and part of it was the the main character of the children of Pompeii the protagonist of the children of Pompeii survives he's he's in the neighboring uh, Naples uh, when the mm. uh, when Mount Vesuvius erupts uh, and he's sitting there and he, and he kind of has to to grapple with all these people you know and then he starts wow. forgetting them one by one and he, he he tries to keep their memory alive by telling their stories but one by one he forgets their stories and uh, over time he's just he just feels lost and then he feels like it's his responsibility to keep them alive by telling their stories so when he forgets their stories it's like he's responsible for them being lost to the world it's it's this deep and and sad and dark story which is why i've never written it yeah i um i i think i said somewhere in the book uh that the reason the children of pompeii should never be published is that the last thing that the world needs is some kind of you know 300 page nihilistic manifesto that is all about why life is meaningless that's not what people need yeah and so 
and <laughs> I can't imagine a world where people would need that, but uh, I decided that that book is just one that I probably shouldn't write. So, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to put a little bug in your ear, partly because I, like, I want you to write this book. I, I want to <laughs> read it. I want to be number one. Like I want an advanced copy. Yeah. Uh, I'm really, really interested in it, especially now that you've talked a little bit more about it. Um, you know, playing devil's advocate here. Let's say Nietzsche was to write uh, the children of the Pompeii, right? And it takes you obviously into a very dark place. You're looking at death. You're looking at the loss, especially yeah. this guy that he essentially lived and his entire life is gone. So yeah. he's alive, but he's dead because everything that yeah. made him who he was, all of his friends, his family, everything's dead because yep. he, he just escaped it. Um, maybe, right. That's like, that's what Nietzsche was talking about when we're, we're staring yeah. into the abyss, right? Like as much as we want yeah. to sugarcoat it, sometimes life is a very dark and scary place. Right. And part of that is because of our perception. Part of it is because we can't see the bigger picture of things, but you know, maybe the, the message from that book could be, you know, him realizing how precious things are and that some of the things that maybe he was wrestling with, like, oh, yeah, I'm stressed out because I'm going to get evicted or like whatever. These yeah. things are just blips that in the end don't really matter. Right. And it's it's the things in our memories and the, the love that we give to people, those special moments. Maybe those are the really important things. And maybe that's yeah. the balance to all the death and destruction and nihilism. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you one thing, man. You could probably write the book because um, Nietzsche or Nietzsche, right? Uh, yeah. He was part of the inspiration for it, right? There's there was a scene because there it, I never really fully wrote the book, but I, I wrote sections, I wrote pieces of dialogue, and I wrote sort of a storyboard for it. And there was a scene in The Children of Pompeii, or there was supposed to be a scene where at the very end the protagonist walks up to the top, top of Mount Vesuvius and he gives this grand speech, looking into the volcano that killed his whole family and destroyed his life. And he gives this grand speech staring into the abyss of, of this volcano. Um, and it was very Nietzsche inspired. Um, going back to him for a second, I, 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 do, I have to agree with you. I hate when people mischaracterize him. Um, when, when somebody says God is dead and they use it as almost like a, a rallying cry <laughs> instead of a warning, yeah, you know, yeah. which is what he sort of meant it as. Um, it's it's discouraging. It's the same thing with Sartre, though, right? And I I talk about Sartre in the book too, where he says, uh, uh, "Hell is other people." People often use hell is other people as this as you know a defense against other people. When Sartre was really talking about other people make you feel like more trapped inside of yourself. The real devil is is not other people; it's yourself. Um, so the the misunderstanding of philosophy, which goes back to Socrates, right? Mm -hmm. um, is 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 devastating especially with somebody like Nietzsche because he really was and very accurately or, or very intentionally writing about how the death of god was this was a very scary thing yeah. you know and i'm yeah. sure i'm not i'm you know preaching to the choir i'm sure but uh it, it is something that really bothers me about kind of uh Nietzsche's legacy yeah i mean he if you just read the passage, right, not yeah. not the quote, but if you read around it, it's exactly. very clear he he was lamenting the fact. I mean, he yes. was not he was not celebrating yeah. that God was no. dead. He was no, he, he was not. like shit. God died. We killed yeah. him, and like, what what are we going to do now? Like, we're yeah, collectively the we thing, might be doomed. You know, like, yeah, 
this thing, Christianity or God or whatever you want to define it as, uh, was was helping us prop up and and support the weight of existence. It was helping us bear the the struggle and pain of of the human condition. And now that it's gone, we're sitting under this weight and and we're going to be crushed by it. And we don't want to just prop it up with another coping mechanism. We want to figure out a way to to no longer need that coping mechanism, transcend the need for it, and become the uh, the Ubermensch, right? Yeah. Um, yes, it, uh, he's one that I like talking to people about because, uh, the misunderstandings mm-hmm. of him, uh, really illuminate the truth of who he was and, uh, special, special philosopher in the history of, of the yeah. world. Yeah. I, he's, he's by far my favorite and, you know, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book about him. It's, yeah. I'm going to, it's, you know, I'm not really exactly sure what it's going to be called. Maybe I was thinking one thing I was thinking was like, you're not ready for Nietzsche, you know? Um, but you know, it's, it's going to be a practical guide to his philosophy, just just like, you know, Renaissance wisdom, because he's actually, you know, his philosophy is one of the most empowering, like honest, truthful philosophers I've ever read. Like I just, out of everyone, he he's so he's so honest right as the man who wrote the antichrist and condemns christianity right like he's also writing in his work that he's lamenting the death of god like for someone who personally has condemned christianity like he said this isn't for me and i think it's you know trash essentially Um, i think it's harmful to the human psyche he's also able to to recognize as you mentioned that it's it's kind of holding society together like the rabble yeah they they kind of need it because they exactly. don't have the mental fortitude to stare into the abyss and survive. A lot exactly. of people are just going to stare into the abyss and just walk into it and society is going to be lost. And uh, that's kind of what's happening now, right? Like what he, sure. what he saw coming many, many years ago um, mm. in a world where people don't really have morality or ethics taught to them by you know religion anymore it just anything kind of goes right we have this yeah. this really weird this really weird weird world where people have kind of understood the truth that there really isn't a truth and it's just it it's just causing everyone to go everywhere um sure yeah and there's so many directions they can go down right some people lean towards hedonism some people lean towards uh existentialism or nihilism or they go deep into faith or they go deep into science and they get lost in those directions because they don't really know where they're going they're just they're just looking for something that can kind of replace or or be a substitute for truth yeah and it's uh it's pretty detrimental to them in the long run and detrimental uh, detrimental to the world yeah, Sean, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation. Uh, all right, so I gotta I gotta try to keep it moving on because I do have some stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I could just keep going down rabbit holes with you Same. all day. Yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, so uh, next thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, and this this is kind of a short side note. There was a section where you talked about taking a helicopter up to the top of Mount Everest. Um, and essentially like what, what you were highlighting or what you were showing was that the, the journey and the struggle that it takes to get to the top of the mountain is, is part of the process of enjoying the view, right? You, yeah, the view is so beautiful to the people who have gone up there because they, I mean, literally for, for months they've, they've prepared, right? They, I know that like, I've read about the process, like you get helicoptered down into like Nepal 
and then you have yeah. to like hike for like several weeks and then you get up to like a base camp where you like resupply and then you have to like hike again and then you have to just keep going and it's it's a yeah. huge huge process plus all the training the expense yeah um so that's part of what makes it so special right is that you have to go through all of this to get there you can't take a helicopter to to the top of mount everest but if you yeah. could would it would it, someone that it wouldn't just, be the same yeah someone that helicoptered up there would would their experience of this view be the same as the person that did the work and it's really interesting because I use this like metaphor a lot and I've never heard it anywhere else. And just to find it in your book was another one of those like synchronicities. So, um, sure. I don't know. Do you want to, you want to tell me a little bit about that or any more thoughts or. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for people who haven't read the book, it comes, uh, in the form of a dialogue as most of the ideas in the book come through is in the dialogue. And it's between two people who are in a pretty big disagreement about this concept and it's uh instead of being about mount everest it's about this view that they have in key west they're on a boat you know they're surrounded by water nothing no clouds in the sky uh no land in sight beautiful blue skies and they're just fishing it's a great great perfect day right and one of them is a 24 year old kid who basically says you know how lucky am i that i get to live this every day and there's another guy who you know, worked his whole life in order to retire to this life. And it's talking about, you know, they're both seeing the same thing. They're both looking at the same view of this, this ocean and they're both having the same sort of experience, but their experience is so different because of what they did to get there. One person kind of took a shortcut and is like, why would I want to work my entire life to, to retire to this, to this world that I can just live right now. And, and the older guy who, who did that basically says, uh, because you learn how to appreciate it. You know, it, 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 even though we're looking at the same thing, we're not looking at the same thing because I, you know, I climbed the mountain, you took a helicopter here and our experience of this will never be the same because of that. And, uh, it really speaks to the value of hard work and the value of, of earning something versus mm -hmm. kind of taking a shortcut. Um, but I tried my best to make the dialogue about this concept be as even as possible, um, where I try to have, you know, Alex, the, the young person in this, in this conversation really make some good points about, you know, um, what, what value is there in hard work that's only being done for the sake of doing hard work. You know, if you push on a door that says pull, that's, there's no value in that, you know, you're, it's sometimes it's better to work smarter and not harder. And it's this, it's this great back and forth, um, where depending at the time of my life and depending at, you know, what we're actually talking about, I, I fall on both sides of the debate. I, that's another thing I love about the dialogues in your book too, um, by the way, is that like, <clears throat> there, there's, there's not really ever like a winner for the most part. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're reading it through the, through the eyes of, of Alex, right. And he's narrating it. So, You'll, you'll see him sort of like change his perspective in response to, to new information that he was exposed to. But I like that, yeah. you know, it's, it's true to life in the sense that there's two different sides and each person expresses it and they both kind of come away seeing the other person's perspective, like maybe holding parts of their own perspective, but it's, everything's different because now the, the paradigm has kind of changed a little bit. And I, yeah, I love that. Cause that's, that's life. It's not that's, really that's a right life. or wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I start the book off where Alex is a very smart, well-read, very intelligent guy. 
but he's constantly coming up against people and ideas and, and conversations that make him reevaluate everything he thought he knew, which is sort of the benefit of, of reading, but also the benefit of philosophy is that you are sort of forced to reevaluate everything you think you know and find out how little you actually do. Yeah. All right. Moving to the, moving to the next one. Um, All right. So this will probably be a little short one too, but something that I really, you know, another synchronicity, right? Between the two of us and our, our thought, um, you, you referenced the Machiavelli letter in, yeah. in your book <clears throat> that I use to actually end my book. So the, the end of my book is this letter, um, from Machiavelli. And he's essentially, you know, he's talking about how boring his days are. And like, he's like, I wake up, I go to work. Uh, I, I pass the time, you know, I try to try to sit under a tree for, you know, his lunch break or whatever you call it. Um, and I, I try to read some classic authors and, you know, some, some Livy or whatever it is. And, you know, then I, then I go, you know, down to the bar and I play cards with these old men and we just, we argue about shit and drink and yeah. whatever. And then I, then I go upstairs at the end of the night and I, I undress and I put on like this really nice, elegant robe and I sit down in my chair and I immerse myself in these ancient authors. And for me, I just, I couldn't see any better way to end my book because it's like that, that was the Renaissance, right? It was a bunch of people yeah. who just picked up these ancient works and they, they started digging in. And that's what I, what I wanted to pass on in my book was not just to read my book and be like, Oh yeah, I like learned some, some great stuff. But like my, my, my goal is that my book is not an endpoint, right? It's a doorway. It's a window that you, yeah. you go into it and you see sort of a pathway to go forward. Um, what, what was, what was your inspiration for that letter? And I, I find it really interesting that you've even read that letter before. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, if you read heaven and hurricanes, um, or, you know, spend five minutes around me, I, I, I like talking about books. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so any, people from history who also love reading is, is something I, I, you know, I treasure. So, um, I found that letter, uh, you know, I don't even remember how, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, some, sometime throughout college and I connected to it so much. Um, but one of the things I do, and I, I talk about this in the book is I, I try to do these thought experiments that are essentially conversations between people from history. And I try to imagine how they would go. Like, how would Machiavelli's interpretation of, of, you know, or of reading, right, his perspective on how valuable reading is, be matched against Socrates' idea of, like, this should be discourse, this should be dialogue, this shouldn't be written down, it's just interpretation, you're coloring it with your own implicit bias, it's not, it's not <laughs> the truth of what the person meant, it's just, it's you looking into a mirror and finding yourself in somebody else's work. And I, I try to imagine what that would be like uh, throughout that, so... Um, the inspiration of using it was to say, you know, there's, there's this immense benefit to sitting down and reading, um, uh, uh great people from history. There's no doubt about it that it's one of the greatest things a person can do for themselves mm -hmm. is learn from the past to improve their own personal future. Um, there's no doubt about that, but, um, and I talk about this in the book too, where I talk about, um, Eliza, the love interest in the story, her effect on Alex, the protagonist, right? Um, she kind of makes him want to change or she wants him to change. And he says at one point in the story, it's almost like she 
it's almost like Eliza is calling for my life to undergo a sort of industrial revolution and what she calls progress, I see as pollution, mm -hmm. right? I see it only for the downsides <clears throat> of what this progress uh, necessitates. And I, you know, so much of that is what Alex is going through. So he brings up the value of reading the books, but then at the end of the story, he's like, do I really need to keep reading or is there a benefit to putting the books down for a minute? I've read for a decade, you know, I've read for five years, I've read for six years and I've never gone out and actually tested any of these ideas. So I wanted to, or the reason I included that was to paint both extremes was to say, you know, you, you have to, at the end of the night, get into the fancy robes and go have a conversation with the wisdom of the elders. But then at some point you also have to go outside and have a conversation and put those ideas to the test. And, and mm -hmm. um, it actually touches on something we talked about a little bit earlier, right? Which is just, just philosophy in and of itself, which is uh, the love of wisdom, right? Uh, translated yep. from the Greek, it's just mm -hmm. the love of wisdom. And uh, something that I try to touch on in the book is that, that love is is not a noun; it's a, it's a verb, right? It's it's an action. So to love wisdom is something that you have to do, right? Philosophies yeah. are things you can have, but philosophies are also something you can do. You can put your philosophies to the test, and you can and live by way of your philosophies. And that's um, that's something that Alex really struggles with throughout the book. That's be beautifully said, and I it makes me think of uh, you know another quote by Epictetus. Uh, do not explain your philosophy, embody it, right? At, yeah. At yeah. some point, <clears throat> you got to take what you've learned and you have to apply it to your life. And that's that's a big inspiration for me. That That's the point of my book. That's the point of this podcast. Yeah. It's, it's not just for us to come on and discuss all this stuff and, you know, pump up my yeah. ego. Like I, I know no, all these things, course. right? Yeah. <laughs> but to take, a, to take a listener and show them like, all right, here's some ideas that you can pull out of someone's experience or out of someone's yeah, life yeah. and you can apply it to your own life to make it better. So absolutely, I, I love that. And, um, the, the last kind of like synchronicity that I want to talk about, um, was you obviously, you know, we talked about Nietzsche already. You, you mentioned Nietzsche's eternal reoccurrence. Um, this is an idea that is really important in my life. Uh, Essentially, you know, I'll explain the eternal reoccurrence for anybody who's not familiar is basically Nietzsche has this quote. He says that imagine this demon comes to you and the demon shows you all of the life that you lived. It shows you everything that you've done, everything that you have experienced. And then he tells you everything you've done and everything you will do from this day forward, you're going to have to repeat over and over and over again for eternity. So, so imagine for a second, like put yourself in the, the shoes. This is actually happening to you. This demon is telling you like every single action that you take from here on out, you have a knowledge that you are going to have to repeat the same action over and over again. Right? So for example, if, if you decide that you're going to neglect your relationship, right? Like you're, you're in a relationship with someone you care about, you're going to neglect that in order to make money. You're going to have to make that same decision. So that, that, that separation that you feel with your partner, you know, the estranged, the, the estranged like family member that you have, that you're choosing not to, to get back in touch with the, the thing that you know, that you should be doing that would improve you the you know, reading the book, the not eating junk food, the going to the gym, whatever, like you're going to repeatedly do those things. And the, and all of the same problems that you have, you're going to have to have forever because you're not solving them now, right? Like you're not taking the action to live the life that you want to live. 
And that's, he says, right? He, he's like, if you had any sense at all, you would not call this demon a demon. You would call this demon a God because he's giving you like the key to living the life you want to live is that imagine each moment, each decision that you make, you're going to have to do this over and over and over and over again for, for eternity and let that inspire you as you go forward. So super meaningfully, super meaningful to me, right? I'm, I'm very passionate about it. It's, it's really Same. important to my philosophy. Um, t tell me a little bit about, you know, your inspiration for putting it in there. Um, what it means to you. This is one of the ideas that makes me love Nietzsche so much, you mm -hmm. know? Um, I, 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 I talked about it for a second before, but I'll talk about it again. I think there's a really thin line that separates like a hypersensitivity and nihilism. And I, I see that time and time again with Nietzsche. He said he feels to me like such a sensitive, sensitive guy. Yeah. And so when he, he talks about the idea of the eternal recurrence, the eternal return, in a couple of books, right? He talks about it a little bit in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He talks about it in The Gay Science. He talks about it a bunch in his journals. But when you go back and you and you read how he talks about it, he's very passionate about the idea. It's almost like he wanted it to be his big legacy. He wanted it to be the, the thing that people remembered him for because it was his greatest contribution, at least in his eyes, to to philosophy. And in that way, he was sort of protective of it. You know, he was like, he, he wrote about it, but not as much as he wrote about other ideas and it's it but it, when he wrote about it he wrote about it very emotionally and very beautifully um and it it really is an idea that that you know if you only had one idea from philosophy it's a pretty good one to uh take and apply to your life yeah. because if you have to relive these same set of circumstances down to the smallest smallest detail over and over again for eternity and you have to make those same choices over and over again forever they better be the right choices. They better yes. be yep. choices that you are proud of. They better be choices that, that, you know, you can stand behind and, and defend, or at the very least justify or, or be able to explain to yourself because, uh, make no mistake, th these choices, you know, end up becoming who you are as a person. They end up being your legacy. They end up being your life. Um, so I included it because it's, it's an idea that is so, it's profound, but it's also uh, it's also alive. You know, it's an idea that changes based on the day. You know, mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the things I always thought about it, and I and I talk about it that way in the book, where if you die on a bad day, and that demon shows up, you know, or you might be like, really today? This is what I have to relive on my last yeah. day over and over again. And I thought about that when you know when I first heard about it. I'm like, it, there are days where I, I would say that he's a god and there are days where i would say that he's a demon and i kind of wanted to touch on that but then and this is one of the only things that i changed after uh i found out that i was going to be a father it's one of the only things i changed is i went back and i sort of rewrote that section of where he kind of reanalyzes it for the second time in the book and he says you know if i if i were to die again or if i were to die you know knowing what i know now about my life uh I would say that this was this was God. This was an angel because I I'm so lucky that I get to relive this life. I'm so lucky that I get to to experience this again, knowing that every bad thing that's ever happened to me and every bad choice I ever made and everything I ever hated <laughs> led me to a place like this. You know? Yeah. Beautiful man. I I love I love the eternal reoccurrence. It's definitely it, it's it's just the best. Man. 
Nietzsche is one of – it's hard to say somebody is better than him. They might be as good as him, but there, there's no one better. Yeah. You know? I, w- I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. Um, so that that leads me to – and this this will this is probably going to be the most like personal thing I touch on. So again, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, but, um, <clears throat> so at the end of your book, you, you write some letters, right? Um, per- personal kind of dedications to people that were from your own life. And you wrote a letter to your son, which how old is he, by the way, just out of curiosity, two, like, two. okay. Or he's a little under two, he turns <clears throat> two in a couple months. Okay. So you, so you wrote a letter to your son and you, you kind of say, you know, look, I, I'm not sure if you're ever going to read this or not. Um, you know, but I'm assuming that at some point, right in his lifetime, he's going to pick, he's going to pick up this book and he's, he's going to read this letter, yeah. right? He's going to find out it's there. Um, you mention that the, the suffering of life, right? Like this kind of like nihilistic attitude of like the children of Pompeii, right? We're all doomed anyway. Uh, caused you to not want to give birth to a child. And the reason was because you said, all right, suffering is inherent to life. So by creating life, you multiply suffering, you create more suffering, yeah. right? Um, which is a really interesting, you know, kind of like a philosophical dilemma, I guess, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the trolley experiment a, a bit. Sure. You know, if you have the choice between creating suffering or not creating suffering, are you, are you doing a injustice by creating someone that can suffer? Right. Um, but then, right, I, I think about what we've talked about with the eternal reoccurrence, um, the, the fact that you have to climb the mountain and the climbing of the mountain is part of what uh, makes the experience so beautiful and your, your own experience of growing up and writing and Alex's experiences. And it, it seems like you've come to a place where you realize that there is there is value in that suffering, right? This, the suffering yeah. is not necessarily something that's inherently bad or intrinsically bad, but it's something that actually creates meaning in life. It, it's part of the journey. So you have a son. So obviously you, you, you came to a place where maybe you changed on that. So I just wanted to see like, you know, do you still hold that view? Have you reconciled the differences Are do you still hold them both kind of at the same time? Like how, how did you come to have a son? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> I, I would I would preface this by saying that throughout the book, Alex reexamines different pieces of literature, and one of the pieces their works that he's obsessed with is uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And in the very beginning of the book, he essentially reads Walden, and it's like he sees it as, oh, this is this is my call to go out into the woods, right? But instead of the woods, he goes to Key West, and over the course of the of the novel he changes so when he goes back and looks at Walden at the end of the novel he he feels transformed in the same way that that the was transformed at Walden's pond and sees the book in a completely different light you know in one in one time or during one read he sees it as a, a, a call to go into nature and in the next read he sees it as a call to leave nature um, it's it's the whole book is kind of constantly re-examining the same concept from different perspectives, you know, how they change in proportions to the way that you change. And it's no different with this idea. Uh, Alex, using basic, uh, you know, syllogistic reasoning, transitive property, right? He goes, uh, to have a child or, or to live is to suffer. To have a child is to create life. Therefore, to have a child is to 
create suffering. And he sits mm-hmm. there and he goes, how do I reconcile that and bring a child into the world despite just despite knowing that I'm a sort of the root cause of whatever pain they feel in life. You know, anytime they feel cold, sick, heartbroken, you know, scrape their knee, whatever, any pain that they feel, I am sort of at the, the core of, or at least the, the, the initiation point. Um, and throughout the course of the novel, he changes. So his perspective on that idea also changes and, uh, you know, call it, biology call it a, a side effect of getting older uh you know maybe it is just him getting wiser and, and learning that that with suffering comes wisdom or with suffering comes value or with suffering comes meaning itself you know and to to create suffering is to also create meaning you know and, and maybe he justifies it to himself in that way um for me personally um it was something that I really struggled with. And yeah, this is super personal, but I, it, it's something that I'm sure a lot of people feel, right? Especially, um, uh, I don't know how we're doing on time, but I got, uh, I got a story for you if you, if we have, yeah, have so time for it. Yeah, so we're, we're definitely running over, but I'm good, you know. Oh, yeah, if, me too. If, yeah. yeah, okay, cool. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I'm going to backtrack and tell a kind of a longish story. <laughs> um for the last couple of years, I worked as a counselor at a youth shelter, and this youth shelter was, um, or is, I don't, I no longer work there, but it still is. Uh, it's a place, it's a, a temporary housing situation for kids, basically 13 to 17, who have been uh, abused, neglected, um, orphaned, uh, you know, any sort of things. They, some had behavioral problems, some had criminal histories, drug issues. It was a whole host of reasons that the kids came there, but ultimately it was a place where they could come and be safe while, uh, whether it was the state or family, tried to figure out a more long-term solution. And while there, one of the things I saw over and over and over again was something that I would, uh, I'd refer to it almost as an identity by way of opposition. Um, they, they feel... Um, you know, let down or hurt or betrayed or, or just straight up traumatized and, and whatever, uh, devalued by their experiences, by their parents. And as a result, they sort of try to become the antithesis of their parents. Um, you know, if, uh, their parents are super conservative, they become very liberal or vice versa. If they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're never allowed to have soda. All of a sudden these kids want to do the hardest drugs known to man. Right. Uh, and it's, it's anything it's, it's, it's anything like that. You know, don't get a face tattoo. What do they go out and get a face <clears throat> tattoo? Um, and it was always yeah. something like that. And one of the conversations that I had repeatedly, repeatedly with these kids was, um, whether you do something because your parents tell you to or whether you do something because you want to prove to them that they don't have control over you, either way, you're doing it because of them. Either way, they still have control over you. you know, if, you're, if you're a force in line with them or you build yourself up as an opposing force to, to kind of fight against them, either way, you're doing it for them. And I thought about that a lot while writing this book. I thought about that a lot uh, while reading your book, right? And like I said, with the Hegel, the idea of the dialectic, the going back and forth, the need for oppositions. Um, 
it's why the titles heaven and hurricanes, right? It's it's you know you have one hand as you have Key West is this place of of absolute beauty and heaven. On the other side, it's this place of of hurricanes and not so not so great sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways. But uh, and, I, and to kind of culminate that at the end of the book, it, Alex is sitting there with this idea that a lot of his identity is formed not by freedom or free will or free choice or um, anything like that. It, you know, he's he's kind of wrestling with the idea that his identity was born out of pain. His identity, his, his choices, his beliefs, his philosophies are all from a place of being hurt, you know. Uh, he doesn't want to bring a kid into the world just so that they can suffer the same sort of life that he suffered as a child. Um, and he really wrestles with that. And it's something that I think anybody, not that I had a, a terrible childhood, I love my childhood, I love my parents, but mm-hmm. it's something that I think a lot of people can identify with who grow up in a certain set of circumstances who, uh, you know, when it comes time to have a kid, they sit there and they look themselves in the mirror and say, how can I bring someone into the world? Am I, am I really prepared to fix the mistakes of my parents or, or make up for them? So Alex I think he sort of hides behind his philosophy, which he does throughout the book in a lot of different ways. He kind of says, this is, you know, I'm doing this because I don't want to create suffering. But really, I think it's a, it's more about fear. I think it's more about fear of leading people into the same sort of life that he lived um, or feeling the same for, sort of feeling of suffering that he that he felt and kind of felt trapped by for the majority of his young adult life. Mm-hmm. And... The ending, the reason he comes around to having a kid, at least in my perspective, you know, people who read the book can can come to their own conclusions. I don't, I don't really believe in the uh, the sanctity of authorial intent that that strongly. Um, but it, at least in my perspective, him coming around to that idea is his recognition that, you know, maybe I can be different. Maybe I don't need to just create a life that's designed to not be my parents or to be my parents. Maybe I can create a life that's different. Maybe I can take some, some power and control and, and, and do something a little bit different. Okay. That, I mean, that that's a great, great response. Uh, Sorry I'm, if that was a little bit of a rant. No, no, no. I'm, I'm yeah. just, I'm listening intently. So, um, cause look, I, you know, I just, as I mentioned, uh, I have issues with, wanting to have a kid, um, you know, part of a little bit of my background is, um, you know, I haven't always had the best relationship with my dad. Um, he's not, not a bad dad. Um, not, you know, I don't, I don't want to like trash the guy cause I know that, and the more I get older and the more I look back and the actually reading your book was kind of therapeutic in that sense too, is like, I realize a lot of the suffering and silence that, that he did, you know, I, like, there's a picture that I had painted because of some of the pain that I felt from him not being around as much. But then looking back, I'm like, well, I can remember him working two jobs, you know, to, to pay for our home. And he never, you know, he, he never threw that in my face. He never said like, you know, I worked two jobs for you and he still never has said anything like that. And I think maybe, maybe I haven't adequately appreciated. So I don't, I don't want to trash the guy because even though there was a a pain inside of me that maybe would have, made me want to trash him at one point. I think that that, that was youth and that, that was, um, immaturity. And I, now I'm not so convinced that I, I can even accurately identify what happened or didn't happen. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I question my own thoughts, but, um, 
the the thing with that is like him not necessarily being around as much. I kind of always thought like, I just wouldn't want to be that kind of dad. Like, and part of it is because he had his own dreams and his own motivations. And I think he was torn between his own motivations and the things that he wanted to accomplish <laughs> and trying to be a father. And I think that's a really hard place to be. And so for me, I've always said like, you know, I can never see myself having kids because I still have so many things that I need to accomplish and I want to accomplish as a human being. And, you know, I work a nine to five and that already takes up way too much of my time. Like there, there's yeah. bet between like, you know, I do jujitsu every day. I go to the gym every day. I work eight hours a day. I'm doing a podcast. I wrote a book. I'm working on my next book. I'm recording an audio book. I mean, I'm trying really hard to to cherish my current relationship um, and put time and effort into that and to be a better man and just human being. And I feel so stretched then and I'm okay with it. I'm putting myself there. I'm, I'm pushing myself, but I'm like, I just, if I had a kid right now, I would be the parts of my dad that I resent. I, I would be too absent. I wouldn't be there. And if I'm going to have a kid, I really want to be in a place where, you know, I don't need to work more than 20 hours a week because I know that there's too yeah. many things that I need to do as a human being that I need to accomplish that make me feel good, that allow me to, to, to feel eudaimonia and to flourish as a human being. And um, I, I don't think I could balance it right now. And that and that's my fear, right, I guess, is the, the loss of myself. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh People being lost to their roles is a is a real phenomenon, you know. Um, and I touch on that in the book, you know. And I, I I talk about how when somebody dies, it's so often discussed only in terms of their roles, where it's it's my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my wife, my friend, my colleague, whatever. It's it's you define the death by the role that they had in your life, and you you sort of take ownership in a, of it in a way where the death is something that you now possess as, as something, but it, it's very rarely discussed as like, oh, this person died. The, they lost their story. It's not just the loss of their role in my life, but the loss of the story um, as an individual, and that's something that's sort of rare. And uh, yeah, becoming a father, I think, is something that, that changes your roles, and I think it's one of the major reasons why people like uh, Socrates and Kant and Wittgenstein and Sartre and so many philosophers didn't mm -hmm. go down to have kids. Um, and to quote, uh, uh, God, what's this? Uh, Game of Thrones, right? Love is the death of duty. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's something I think about a lot because it, it really is something that, uh, that I think touches on, on, uh, so much, um, and in a very profound way. So much of what you just said, and you know, I don't know too much of your background beyond what you just told me. Um, but, but one of the things that I see, at least in myself, or or in my journey, or in, in people that I know, is journeys. It sounds similar. Um, is it's it's I'm trying to think. You know, uh, so much of here. I'll, I'll take a step back. When you go on like a first date. You know, or you're on one of those uh, dating a Tinder or Hinge or something. One of the first questions people ask is always like, what's the most important thing in a relationship to you? And what do people say? Honesty, loyalty, whatever, right? Commitment, whatever it is. Um, and so often they're revealing more about themselves than they even know that they are, right? When you say honesty is the most important thing to you, 
you find out that, oh, was, was somebody not honest to you in your past? Were you hurt by dishonesty? And that's the reason you, you value or put so much value into honesty um, or loyalty, right? Was somebody disloyal and that hurt you? And now you, you have this, uh, you know, extra appreciation for uh, loyalty because of that. Um, and the same thing happens in character development all the time, right? Somebody is weak as a child, they feel picked on or, or marginalized, and they become obsessed with strength as a result, right? Um, or they become obsessed with uh, not feeling that way ever again, and it becomes sort yeah. of a big part of their yeah. identity, you know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, it almost sounds like uh, the, I can see sort of parallels, and it's happening in real time right now between you and uh, Alex, because one of the things that really hurt Alex as a character was the fact that his father didn't have enough time, you know, he was, he was stretched. He was, he's going back and forth with, uh, with work and with just, you know, life, you know, life has a way of getting in the way of living. And, uh, he really struggled with his father not being around enough to talk to him and, and guide him through life, connect with them. And that's one of the reasons he fell in love with books. Um, it's also one of the reasons he didn't want to have kids. It's also one of the reasons that he valued what he valued in other people, you know, connection yeah. and conversation and things. Uh, I think what you just said, you know, it, I, I'm sure that a lot of people in the world can, can relate to that of, you know, we, we don't want to make the same mistakes our parents made, even if they weren't mistakes, you know, we don't want to, um, we want to correct for things that, you know, don't even aren't necessarily faults, you know. Uh, right. It's it's really it really strikes at the core of what it means to be a person and what it means to to evolve over the over the course of a lifetime, you know. Yeah, so like you know something that was helpful for me, and I like I, I kind of like before reading your book, I thought I was kind of like all healed from all that. It's kind of weird, like yeah. I, I thought like all that stuff was like good. I'm like you know I'm feel I feel really happy. I'm like I'm good with where I am. I'm good with what happened. Yeah. I don't really hold resentment. And like reading through your book and just like, you know, the, the way that Alex talked about his dad and especially when Alex like um, met like Liza's dad and yeah. like spoke with him, like <clears throat> there were definitely, it pulled up parts and like thoughts and feelings that I was like, you know, I don't think I'm like fully healed, but I, I will say part of like my initial healing process that really was helpful was just realizing that like, despite like any resentment or despite if you think that someone wronged you in your life, this is really important for people. Like a lot of people don't do this. It's just realizing that everybody else is just a human being and they're just doing the best they can. And maybe at the time, like when they harmed you or when this thing happened, maybe they just really didn't have what they needed. Like maybe, maybe they were drowning and they were just kind of like reaching out. And unfortunately you're the person that, that got dumped. And, um, realizing that the things that happen to you and the things that people do to you have nothing to do with you and they have everything to do with them. Um, that can help you through a lot of trauma. And I, I definitely recommend anybody that's, you know, having like a time in their life where they're feeling really hurt by someone or someone else's actions is like, you don't have responsibility for that. You know, if you're a kid, like you're not responsible for your you know, your parents getting divorced. Like if you have a bad relationship with a parent, you're, you're not responsible for that. If you've been cheated on, like you're, you're not responsible for that. Right. Like, of course there's, there's always pieces of accountability that, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone else that maybe you could do things differently, but 
at the end of the day, like everyone is just a human being and we're all lost. We're all looking for truth and we're just, we're doing the best we can. Absolutely. Um, and not to get us canceled and switch this to a totally different conversation, but I do think that touches, uh, or, or at least strikes at, um, something that's happening with, you know, cancel culture. Right. And the only reason I even thought about it was because of the, the joke about getting canceled. But yeah. yeah, the, the idea of getting canceled, uh, and, and responsibility and, uh, you know, how much, um, forgiveness can people be shown? You know, how much can we say, you know, depending on what the thing is, obviously, and depending on what situation is, it's all, it's all very situational, but I have quotes in my book, man, that, that I'll share on, on Instagram or something. And then people will say something like, Oh, you're apologizing for, for abusers. You're making excuses for, for, yeah. And it's, and it's like, uh, there's a difference between trying to understand somebody and forgiving them. There's a difference between trying to understand somebody and, and, you know, uh, saying that what they did was acceptable or even okay, you know? Um, and I think there's, there's a lapse or there's a middle ground for sure, right? You can't be too understanding. You can't be too forgiving. You can't, you can't be too dismissive. I mean, there's, you can be all two of those things, but there's something in the middle where it says, you know, Hey, we should try to understand people, even and especially the people we don't like. Um, uh, there's there's quotes about that, right? You know, like uh, when you talk about freedom of speech, you're also talking about freedom for speech that you don't agree with. Yeah. Um, yep. And when you're talking about uh, forgiveness or, or accountability or understanding, there, there has to be some level of let's try not to just paint people as monsters. <laughs> let's try to understand what happened you know, hold people accountable while understanding them. Uh, there's, there's a middle ground there that I think it's lost in the conversation between, you know, or the whole conversation of cancel culture, right? Because one side says we're just holding people accountable. The other people says, you know, you're not understanding the, the complexity of what that situation was. One tries to overcomplicate, one tries to oversimplify. And uh, the truth, as, as it almost always does, lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I, I see it a lot um, on my like philosophy says Instagram page. Like I've, you know, <clears throat> I posted some quotes by Marx. I'm not a Marx yeah. supporter. I've I've read the Communist Manifesto. I think that there are, there's obviously wisdom there. There's insight there that he had that no one else had really expressed. And there's a reason that communism uh, has spread the way that it that it has. Right yeah. it, there, there's there's truth there. He's touching on a part of existence. And it's important yeah. to understand that whether you agree with it or not. And, you know, I, I post Marx and how dare you post Marx? And I'm like, well, I, yeah. I don't support Marx. Uh, I'm just, you know, I think this quote has wisdom to it. I think that it, it makes sense. I yeah. think that everyone should read it. And then, you know, I quote, a to- uh, post a Thomas Jefferson quote, and then, well, he was a slave owner. Like, you know, everyone freaks out about that. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I think about a lot is like, you know, look at MLK, right? Like, great human being look at look at what he did right like he he was very 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 responsible for a a change in america that needed to happen right like a a reform that desperately needed to happen and he was he was a cheater he was like a he was a womanizer right like it's like the fbi was blackmailing this guy because they're like we know that you're having affairs hotel room photos and things yeah yeah. and you're gonna you're gonna step in line or we're gonna expose you and it's like 
you know, or Tiger Woods, like when he had his affair and all this stuff, right? Like I know that I'm, I keep going back to the infidelity thing, but like, just because someone maybe is bad, right? Maybe they are just genuinely bad. Like maybe they yeah. have, you know, Adolf Hitler, like for example, right? Like just not, not really a lot of like redeeming qualities about the dude, right? Yeah. Like no matter how much you dislike someone, no matter how much you dislike their actions, there is still something that you can learn from that human being. And like, you know, in MLK, yeah. right, for example, he's a really good example. Like, does does his legacy become completely tarnished and tainted because he was unfaithful? Well, yeah. you know, a lot of people are so drawn towards this black and white, like good or bad, that, you know, people would just be like, yeah, you know, he was a bad person. Like, it's like, well, that doesn't stop all the good that he did. Um, yeah. you, you, like we need to stop trying to just classify people by, you know, what they've done or haven't done and just like, you know, look at the situation as dynamic and changing because people are dynamic and changing and, you know, someone can, can, can do like a self-sacrificing good. Like someone could be a piece of shit their entire life, just yeah. hurt everyone's rob, steal, rape, pillage. And then they could sacrifice themselves to like save humanity. You know, like they could be the yeah. guy that's like, I'm going to jump in front or I'm going to kill the guy that's about to push the button. That's going to release all the nukes. It's going to kill everybody. And then they're going to shoot me. But I stopped like yeah. they could literally save the world. Right. So look yeah. at this person that's lived a completely terrible life. And their last dying act was to save humanity. Good or yeah. bad. I don't know. Yeah. Like your, your guess is as good as mine. I, yeah. Passing moral judgments like that is always, you know, difficult. Uh, you touch on it in your book a little bit, right? Where you, you're like, is selfishness bad? Is selfishness a bad quality? And it's like, like maybe, maybe not. But I certainly want to. I wouldn't want to get rid of the the benefits to humanity that were gifted by very selfish individuals. Yeah, there are very selfish people who gave the world a lot of things that that really benefited the world. A lot of terrible things. History is ugly. History is disgusting. When you really sit there and learn about history, you go, it, it, there's unimaginable horrors inflicted on people, even in the present time, right? There's unimaginable uh, realities that, 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 you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, fill this world and fill the human history, and the human story. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's all bad, you know? That doesn't mean that, that you have to, you know, get rid of the good because the bad, you don't cut off your nose to spite your face or whatever. You don't yeah. throw the baby out with the bathwater, all those cliches yet. But for some reason, it, people seem more willing to do it with certain ideas than others. Um, and I think it, it, it speaks more to them and their personal pasts, right? So if somebody, you know, says that, you know, Martin Luther King should be ignored because he's a cheater or Tiger Woods or whoever, right? Um, it's like, okay, who hurt you? Who, who's yeah. the person that hurt you that made you decide to demonize infidelity to the level that you are willing to demonize anyone who's ever been unfaithful in the history of, of relationships? Um, because I, I'm willing to bet that you're not mad at, at Tiger Woods, right? You're mad at your, your mm -hmm. high school boyfriend, you know, or you're mad at your dad for cheating on your mom. You're mad at somebody else. You're, you are not mad at Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, do you have Tiger Woods' phone number? Do you know the guy? Do you, yeah. do, you, do you talk to him? If not, how are you mad at him? How are you mad at, at him as an individual? You're mad at the act because it reminds you of an act that was uh, probably uh, – done to you or done to someone you love and it, it caused a lot of pain that is, is not quite healed or or uh uh been addressed or something you know yeah 
Let let the man golf. And let the man golf. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. that's a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, we're going to move into kind of the the finishing segment here. I again, I could just keep talking to you forever. I am going to have to go yeah, to work man. at some point. So <laughs> yes, yeah, Sam. Let's uh, let's move on. So, um, end of each episode, where we're, we run through, you know, five questions. It's the same for each guest. Um, basically, you know, we're we're looking for things from your own personal life uh, for the listeners, so that they can apply them to their own life. So, uh, first one: do, do you have any important daily habits that that you kind of go through on a day to day basis? Uh, important daily habits. Uh... Not really. I, I try very vaguely to um, learn one thing every day, whether whatever it is. You know, read something different, learn something different, uh, watch something different. I try to know one thing today that I didn't know yesterday. Okay, and I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming reading is a huge part of that because you know, going going through your book, I, it seems, you know, and I don't mean I don't mean this as a jab at all. I mean this as a total compliment. But it seems like you've read every book. Like maybe, maybe all of them. No, yeah. no, no. Um, uh, I, you, you touched on it in your book. I forget who you, who specifically you said it was about, but there was a spiritual sickness uh, that this person was like treating by way of reading uh, between the ages of like 17 to 24. I, I probably read, you know, three or four books a week. It, it was disgusting and I couldn't absorb most of them or almost any of them as well as I should have, but mm -hmm. I, I held on to some things. I, I went back and reread others. Um, it's okay. not something I keep up with as, as much as I used to, but I, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was actually, so it was Augustine. Um, yeah. and, uh, he, he was like the favorite of, uh, Patriarch. Patriarch kept like a little uh, copy of his confessions on him all the time. And, um, yeah. there's, there's a letter that I talk about, like when he climbed the mountain and he pulled it out, but, uh, yeah. He Augustine kind of wrestled with that, and I think Patriarch did too. That you know, there, Augustine writes in his Confessions that you know, essentially like his love of books was kind of taking him away from his connection to God, and that's why he talks about it being a spiritual sickness. As he, yeah. I guess he he felt that this reading and the ancient authors kind of like became his identity, and it sort of robbed him of the attention that he could be putting into the, you know, to the Bible. But uh, yeah, you know, learn learn one yeah. one thing a day. That that's yeah. great. You know, I think continuous learning is, is a huge, yeah. huge part of just a, a good life. Yeah. Um, moving on to the next one. So a lot of people who have done something, right. I mean, like anything of, of note in life, uh, people who are successful, they, they often have experienced some kind of like setback or big failure. That was kind of a transformational moment that caused them to reflect and make a change. Have, have you ever experienced like a big setback or a big transformational moment in your own life? Uh, yeah, too many to count probably, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what first comes to mind is dropping out of high school. You know, I was uh, a junior in high school. I had good grades. I, I, you know, had this vision of my future and I'm sure my family had this vision of my future that was, you know, you're going to go to college and you're going to get this job and you're going to live this life, this prototypical life. And something happened where I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be here anymore. It's not good for me. I, I feel trapped and I feel sick in this environment. And I made the decision kind of against the wishes of my family and my parents and, and basically my friends and everybody I knew where I said, I, I, I kind of have to do this. But from the age of you know 17 or so when I dropped out until about 19, I felt like a failure. 
I felt like I, I'm not going to be able to get my life back on track. I'm not going to be able to figure out how to get a real job. I'm not going to be able to figure out how to for real life. People aren't going to want to employ or date or be friends with a high school dropout. And uh, trying to, to remedy that by way of going to community college and kind of working my way back up and getting back on a track that felt um, more secure took a long time. But uh, that was a major setback that... Uh, that led me to a very good place, you know, as setbacks often do, but only in retrospect. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting, obviously for someone that, you know, dropped out of high school and I can identify that to a lot. Cause I really, I wanted to as well. Um, just cause I thought high school was such a waste. I, I just really felt yeah. that my time was being wasted there. Um, but, uh, as, as someone that, that has basically dedicated themselves to learning and reading and became an author and is now going back to school, just, it's it shows you the arc that that one can take right from from an angsty teen that decides that he's too good to go to school um you know to someone that ends up back in in you know education and yeah. you know even even working like you you mentioned you were working with you know kind of disaffected youth and things like that so yeah. um obviously we go through these things in life and a lot of times it feels like it's one thing and we look back on it and realize it was something totally different yeah, uh, almost no destination is the final destination. You know, no matter where you are, it's probably not where you're going to be forever. You know, yeah. no matter how much it feels like that, no matter how trapped you feel in a certain set of circumstances or ideas or situations, it, it could be that it's very hard to transcend or hard to to get out of. But um, there are ways out, um, even if they're not easy to see. Yeah. Okay. Um... So next, we're going to move on to uh, favorite books. You have you have a couple favorite books you'd recommend. You know, if you had to pick, like yeah, couple. It it, it changes uh, almost by the month, um, but I, I would strongly recommend people go back and read their high school curriculum um, as adults. Right. So if you're an adult listening to this, I strongly recommend you go back and read the books they told you to read when you were 15. That's the Great Gatsby, Catcher in the Rye, you know, uh, any of those types of, of common books. They're, they're phenomenal and they change so much as you change and, and adapt as you adapt. But two books that I always recommend to people is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, yes. which is mm -hmm. phenomenal <laughs> and life-changing and incredible yeah. and, and just – you know, it's one of those books where if I could only carry five books with me for the rest of my life, it would easily be one of them. Um, and another one that I, I uh, always strongly recommend to people is uh, uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Great. It's just a, it's an incredible journey of, of, you know, trying to figure out what this whole life thing's about. Yeah. I Great, great recommendations. I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. I would, I would expect them to be great coming from you, but uh yeah, great, great recommendations. Uh, next one, do, do you have do you have any heroes like you know one one or two people, maybe one that one person that you just you really have looked up to had a had a life changing impact on you? Nah, no, no, uh, no. I don't have I don't have a hero. I've had heroes at different points in my life, um, but as heroes always do, they they inevitably let you down in some way or another, or the things that you thought were heroic about them, now you look back on and kind of see as sad or, or you know, not not a very good thing, you know. Um, so at this stage in my life, no, I don't, I don't really have any heroes. Okay. 
just just the person that you can become, right? That's like basically exactly just yeah, moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, and uh, here here's the big one, right? This is this is going to be the this is the big question. Um, so, if you were writing a letter to yourself, say you know ten or fifteen years ago when you're a teen. You're giving yourself wisdom. You're going back in time. You're writing a letter to your former self to, to, to give you one piece of information, one big tip that's going to change everything. What what would it be? What would you tell yourself? Oh, man. That's I, the tough one, right? So <clears throat> if I'm aiming at, at a 14 or 15-year-old version of myself, yeah. the, the one thing that I would tell him is that you're going to be okay. Uh, and, and I would probably just leave it as that, leave it at that. I would tell him, you know, you're going to be okay. The younger version of myself was very nihilistic, fatalistic, really thought that, you know, there wasn't much point to anything and that there, that this whole life thing was just sort of a mistake or, or, you know, was, was generally negative. Um, I often look back on that version of myself with a, a, a deep and profound amount of empathy and, um. I wrote something in the book along the lines of uh, Alex goes back and he reads the children of Pompeii mm-hmm. and he, uh, uh, you know, when he finishes reading it at the end of the story, at the end of the book, he finishes rereading it. He says that uh, he has this profound amount of empathy for the person who wrote the book, even though it was him, right? Like the version of him who read the book felt so incredibly sorry and bad for the version of him who wrote it because through that book, he can see how much pain there was. He could see how much sadness there was in the children of Pompeii. He could see how much just, uh, you know, loneliness and despair that there was in it. So I wish that, uh, if I could go back and say one thing to a 15 year old me, it'd be, Hey man, you're going to make it through this and it's going to be okay. And it's going to be really, really beautiful on the other side of it. That's amazing. And I, I'm assuming that, you know, that, that would be a really important message to hear at that time. Cause you'd be hearing it from yourself. So you'd, you'd yeah. believe it. You'd be like, yeah, you know, I think I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have trusted anybody else. You yeah. Know? And I, I, there were certainly people who told me that, you know, my parents told me that my friends told me that my brothers told me that people told me that, but you don't believe them because they don't, they don't really see the world through your eyes. They don't feel what you feel. Not, not directly, you know, they might feel the same things, but they don't feel it you know, they don't really have the full experience of who you are as a person. Um, your memories, your trauma, your everything, you know, your, your thoughts, feelings, desires, hopes, dreams, whatever, mistakes. Um, so yeah, I would think I would only listen to me and, uh, that would be a message that I would really want to tell that guy. Yeah. All right, Sean, uh, I, I loved our conversation today. We definitely, uh, definitely yeah. ran over on time, but I, I do it all again hundred times. Same, man. Uh, I, I'll come I, back anytime. Yeah. And I, pl- please write your next book so I can bring you back yes. on and we can, we can talk again yeah. and, um, I can share. It's so, coming. Again, guys, um, Sean Michael Norris, I'm, I'm going to put links up and everything. We got the book here, uh, heaven and hurricanes, really, really beautiful book. Can't, can't recommend it enough. Uh, hopefully hearing Sean speak for himself has inspired you to want to go pick up a copy. But, uh, if you are not inspired yet, just go get it. Go read it. Check it out. Um, it's a really, really good book. Um, you're, you're definitely going to learn some stuff, reflect on things. So um, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. And Thank uh, you for having me on, man. It's yeah. a pleasure to finally uh, talk to you after all the uh, messages back and forth. Same. Same. Yeah. 
All right. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.